We talk a lot about ESG. It's the buzzword on Wall Street. It's the hottest trend in investing. And at its core is the belief that elites, scientists, politicians, academics, all know what's best for us, what life should be like. They want our investments. They want the money that we have in the unwashed masses for their use, to finance their utopian visions. And that's what ESG really is all about. They tell us all the time we're under serious threat. Before COVID, the big bads were climate change, racism, sexism. So the elites created an investment strategy called ESG. The E stands for environment, the S is social, and the G is governance. But if you've been a regular viewer of this program, you realize that the E really stands for eliminate fossil fuels, per the Green New Deal. The S is for social justice slash critical race theory. And the G is a gender agenda with quotas. You have to have so many uh, from various backgrounds, whether it's LGBTQ or minorities or women or whatever, they require that boards be composed of those people on a quota basis. Now we know that while some ESG investors are very sincere, and they are, there are many others who are blatant hypocrites. They're pushing ESG, claiming it makes for a better world, and yet at the same time, they're selling out to China. Think about that. Those pushing ESG are also shoving money into communist China, which is terrible for ES and G. The Chinese communists are the worst polluters on the planet. They repress their population with social credit scores and even forced human organ harvesting. As for governance, every company in China or doing business in China is told that their job is to serve the Chinese Communist Party, not the shareholders. It's the worst governance on the planet. Now, we've explained ESG as an investment movement and also how hypocritical it is. But now we're beginning a series to break it down. We'll talk about the E in this episode. In future episodes, we'll cover the S and the G. And then we'll break down our alternative. We much prefer LSV. Stands for Liberty, Security, and Values. Here's the question. What's in your portfolio? We hear a lot about climate change. It's been called the greatest national security threat on the planet. You know, it's global warming. The idea is that we humans, with our fancy lifestyles and our gasoline-powered automobiles, are killing the planet. We burn fossil fuels, and that's making it warmer and warmer. We're so bad that we're almost at a point of no return. If we don't change right now, we're all doomed. That's the message we're being told. So the very smart and the very helpful elites like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have decided we need a Green New Deal. They know what's best and will by government mandate and take over your retirement plan to save us all. Yes, you'll pay more in taxes, and yes, you'll have fewer choices. But if we trust them, we might just survive, and for that, we should be forever thankful. Why do we need to do this? Because the science is settled, like it's settled with the coronavirus and gender issues? Oh, we have to trust the science, they tell us. The problem with this is threefold. First, the people pushing the Green New Deal all seem to benefit financially. Second, there are many reputable scientists who make a pretty strong case against climate panic. And finally, even if the Green New Deal proponents were honorable and the science were settled, neither of which are true, 
The solutions don't make any sense. In fact, in some cases, if we adopt their solution, they will be destined to destroy our lives rather than to save them. To better understand the folly of E and ESG, I'd like to introduce you to Mark Morano, publisher of ClimateDepot.com and author of a new book, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Even Worse Than You Think. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Happy to be here today, Kevin. Thank you so much. You know, uh, those that are big on climate change d describe you as the number one climate denier on the planet. How do you respond to that? Well, that was a study in the journal Nature. Peer-reviewed. You don't challenge peer-reviewed. They said I was the number one most cited climate skeptic in the world uh, in the media. Uh, and I, I know I don't know. I don't really have much of a response, except that it's in a form of intimidation. What they've done with these lists that they come out with, they try to identify someone. And the idea is this is like, hey, Google, hey, YouTube, hey, Facebook. These are the people you should be censoring. And the Biden administration, of course, has done that openly. And now, of course, we have the censorship hitting us hard on Facebook. YouTube just announced they're going to be demonetizing and restricting climate deniers. So I think one of the reasons they try to tout is a, a name like you know, build me up as number one is so they can then tear me down uh, and try to silence and deplatform and, and make me go away. But you're not going away. You've been around for a while. You've written several books. You've worked at the right committees in Congress. You're doing the right stuff. And that's why we're turning to you. I mean, they tell us we have to follow the science on COVID. Everybody's got to follow. Tell us, what happens if we follow the science? What do we learn from science about climate change? Well, it's great. I always say, don't follow. You can follow the science, just not the scientific institutions. Because what's happened is NASA's now lead scientists from NASA. First of all, the global warming scientists got arrested half a dozen times. Two lead scientists have come out and said white supremacy is causing climate change. Uh, so these have all been corrupted. All these organizations, the funding, the intimidation, the bullying. The At the EPA right now, uh, Kevin, this is an amazing story. 50 scientists, nearly 50, were just purged because they don't agree with Joe Biden's climate Green New Deal agenda. So guess what? Next year or six months from now, we're going to hear about all the scientists at the EPA. It's 100 percent consensus. When you purge people who don't agree then you have 100% consensus, and that's what they're doing. So in, in essence, you should trust the science, but I would not trust the organs that, that are telling you. Don't trust the media, the United Nations, uh, World Health Organization, which has declared climate the number one public health threat. You need to trust the data, and you need to trust the Earth's geologic history, and you need to trust your own eyes. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at all the data, even in United Nations reports, the underlying data is shocking. They go through and they tell you there have been no there's low confidence, no increase in floods, hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, wildfires. They admit all this in the fine print. So the idea that man-made climate change is causing extreme weather is not supported in the underlying UN report. The summary for policymakers is they come out, they come up with all these scary statements, predictions. They have each line is agreed to. But if you look at the Earth's history, um, we're in the coldest 10% geologically speaking. We probably have warmed up, sorry, cooled since the, the uh, Roman warming period about zero AD. We've cooled or about the same as the medieval warming period from about a thousand AD. And yes, we have warmed since the end of the little ice age in 1850. And yes, we have warmed since the 1970s when they were worried about the global cooling. But in the 1970s, I spent a whole chapter in my book detailing, Kevin, that the solutions to man-made global cooling at the time 
we're the same today. Treaties, sovereignty limiting, going after capitalism, regulations. And they said it was a national security threat if we got colder. They said bad weather was caused by cold. No doubt. Just the same old same. No doubt. Well, Mark, we have to take a break. Uh, It's too much to cover in a single episode. Uh, But when we come back, I'd like to drill down on one specific where following climate change mandates would end society as we know it. So let's take a break and we'll be back with Mark. Mark, we've been talking about how outrageous some of the climate claims have been in the past few years. And you brought up one. I remember very clearly when I was in high school, there was a genuine fear of global cooling. I mean, I was panicked, actually. You know, the planet was going to have too much population and the cooling was going to keep us from getting food and all the other. Tell us in the big picture why the climate alarmists are wrong. They're wrong because it's not carbon dioxide that is the control knob of the climate. Even the World Meteorological Society, all of these groups in the 1970s, 80s admitted this, but it wasn't until 1988 that the United Nations Climate Panel was formed. It became a self-interested lobbying organization. In other words, if it failed to find a catastrophe, it failed to have a reason to exist. So essentially, it's not one factor like CO2. It's hundreds of factors that interplay. Even Climate activists, part of the UN, admitted this 15 years ago. You could find this. Climate temperature is an emergent of hundreds of factors. Tilt of the Earth's axis, water vapor, methane, the sun, clouds, ocean cycles. It's not one factor. So when you look at that and you look at the geologic history of the Earth, know that we've had ice ages with many times higher CO2. And we know that you cannot, there's nothing in today's weather or current temperature or climate related that that you can look at CO2 and say, well, if if CO2 is causing a warming of the climate, you can't distinguish it from natural variability. And that's where I came in. When I worked at the US Senate Environment and Public Works, I'm not a scientist, but I worked with scientists. I was the voice of the scientists as the communication director. I ended up with over a thousand scientists dissenting, including many with the United Nations who said, this is nonsense. I can no longer go along with it. And many of them openly said, you could have a doubling or tripling of the level of CO2 we have today and the temperature of the earth wouldn't notice it. So this is a scare going back to the 1960s. They've had overpopulation, resource scarcity, deforestation, climate change. No matter what it is, they're all the same solution, bigger government, more regulations, a socialist type of utopian vision. And all climate is, is the latest environmental scare. What's changed was COVID, of course, March 2020, everything changed. Climate activists were openly jealous when COVID came along because all the solutions for COVID is what the climate activists wanted for decades. The Chinese style you know, economic repression and social credit system, the lockdowns, lower economic growth. I mean, this was an incredible thing. So. That's where we are, and that's why, you, you know, if you look at the actual climate data, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, none of those are increasing on timescales. Our temperature hottest year claims are a fraud. They're within hundreds or tenths of a degree, which you could actually, uh, which is the margin of error of the temperature record. So when they claim this, they're just making stuff up. And we actually, in my book, I have them admitting this kind of stuff. They admit that these are meaningless stats, but they say it because the media likes it and the activists like it, the hottest year on record. It's nonsense, and they admit it. Yeah, well, it's not just nonsense. It is intended political speech with the intention of creating a certain push towards, well, best way to say it, Marxism, socialism. Yeah, it's scientific lobbying, changing science to get your goal. That's all they're doing. They're using science to lobby for Marxism. Okay, and one of those goals, and and sometimes it's Marxism and sometimes it's personal profit, one of those goals is this push for electric cars because we've got to eliminate the emissions. And I love electric. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I ride in Teslas and think this is a really fun car to drive. It's a fun car to ride in. It's got great technology. All of that's true. 
But California and New York are having mandates. You will no longer be allowed to buy a gasoline-powered engine starting in 2035. And Minnesota's followed suit, and other states are coming along. Car makers understand this, and they're going to be pushing to all-electric vehicles because that's where they see the profits coming. But what I'm seeing is the light bulb thing, where all of a sudden you couldn't buy a traditional light bulb. You had to buy a fluorescent bulb. And eventually you get to LED bulbs and all that. But I think this is all locked in. And I hope with improving technologies, things get better. But I think electric cars are here to stay, and I think that they're going to be mandated. What do you think? I think absolutely. And that's what they do. They're trying. But here's the, here's the insidious thing. They're not just trying to stop the internal combustion engine vehicle and go to electric. There are proposals from international energy agencies, UK-funded reports, United States Climate Act, all to eliminate private car ownership and give the public a roving fleet of electric rental cars. So it just goes beyond that. Just remember, that's their stated policy goal by these states. But you look a little deeper at some of the reports, what's happening in academia. It's truly scary stuff of where they want to go with cars. The problem with electric cars is what you've said. First of all, it's just a mandate. Yes, people could love an electric car. The, the horse, the torque of them alone is amazing in the technology. I've sat in a Tesla, I haven't driven one. I, of course, will probably never buy, an, I don't wanna buy an electric car because I drive a stick shift. Until they can figure out a way to put a stick shift in an electric car, maybe a fake stick shift to make you think you have it. But I personally don't think I would want one. But here's the, here's the gist. They're doing this under the auspices of a climate emergency. And all they're gonna end up doing is turning our grid to have recharging all these cars. We already have, and this year, Kevin, California telling people not to recharge their car, electric cars all at once because it's going to shut down the grid. We have reports coming out of Australia of the same thing that it's already causing grid failures from the mandates and the increased use of, of these electric cars. But the real problem with electric cars is how you make them. And all we are doing, we are trading world's, we're the United States world's largest oil and gas producer as of 2019 pre-pandemic. And we are the world's largest, we had more energy production than consumption. And we had more energy uh, exports than imports. First time since Harry Truman was president. That's what you do when you have a, a full energy policy. But what we're doing with electric car mandates is we're trading all of that in for reliance on Chinese rare earth mining, which supplies 90% of the rare earth mining using Uyghur slaves in China, using to get cobalt in Africa. They're buying up the continent, allegations of child labor. We are turning our energy independence, which we achieved for the first time since Harry Truman was president, into now dependence on China because the Biden administration isn't allowing U.S. to mine. I, I went to a lanthanide mine, which is used rare earth mining metal used in um, uh, catalytic converters. And I saw an American mine shut down. 27 federal agencies shut it down over endangered species concern. We then interviewed the Chinese company doing the rare earth mining in China. Their spokesman laughed and said, we don't have the same kind of environmental restrictions there. That's the problem with electric cars. We're giving up American sovereignty and we're going to be relying on hostile regimes to, to put it politely about China. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about that. And, and you know, you make the point on the grid. Right now, the grid, which is coal-powered and, and nuclear-powered yes. and so forth, can't handle this. What happens if we switch to uh, wind and solar? I, we saw this in Texas, in Snowmageddon. Yeah. Texas failed uh, the citizens and almost destroyed the grid. The grid cannot stay up unless it has constant power capabilities. You put too much wind and solar and those go down and you're in serious trouble. We're going to have to take another break. 
When we come back, I want to talk a little more about what India and China are experiencing in power problems, plus where they get their electricity from and the problems that even that has. So let's take a break and we'll be back. We've been talking about the green movement and how they're going to mandate an all-electric fleet and how the power plants that we currently have aren't going to be able to meet the electric demand that's created. In fact, we're seeing problems with electric demand even without all electric cars. You see in California, they haven't built power plants in years, and they have to go through all this environmental process. This is what I'm concerned about. We're creating a solution to a problem that doesn't exist that will create a very real problem that will exist, and when it does, the only way to solve it will be more big government. We're, in essence, this is crisis after crisis after crisis to suck out our liberty and put the elites in control. Now, we see a grid collapse in California. We saw in Texas problems. If the grid goes down, I've had experts in here on the electric grid, they said if the grid goes down and you can't get it up for a year, 90% of the population could die and we would be back living in the 1800s. So, Mark, how, how do we deal with this? How, how do we do, what, what should we be doing rather than mandating an all-electric fleet? Yeah, well, if you force electric car mandates with, with you, without expanding the non-green solar wind part of your grid, what's going to happen is disaster, energy disaster. First of all, you mentioned California, you mentioned Texas. California, let's do that. California has the highest electricity prices in the country. They're facing now the, the blackouts that are coming. They're, they have literally shut down all of their, literally in the process of shutting down all their fossil fuels. They're doing all the virtue signaling on, on all the uh, renewable energies, so-called, or unreliable energy, solar and wind. And they are just doubling down on their bet. They are sort of a version of what's happening in Europe. Europe, of course, is way beyond us. In Texas, we had that you know, big cold snap. Now, Texas was multifactored. First of all, you had an energy grid that was mismanaged. But bigger, the biggest part of it, they were unprepared for the cold. They had spent so much time with all their press releases bragging about the wind power in Texas. They didn't actually get anything weatherized. So people say, oh, wow, well, it affected you know, the, uh, the, 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 the fossil fuels as well. But if you look at a breakdown of what happened in Texas, wind, solar did the absolute worst of all the other energy. Fossil fuels did far superior. In other words, if you had more wind, you would have had a bigger disaster in Texas. And so what they've done here, these are glimpses of our future. And our future is very simple. Our future, by the way, Kevin, might be coming in the winter of 2021 and 2022. We are watching Europe. We're watching China. All these other countries face this energy crisis of, of high prices and coming shortages. And it might be coming to the United States very soon. And we're about to find out what it's like to live through the 1970s or worse again. Yeah, and there's no doubt, and we're creating our problems. Human-caused energy problem? Yeah, absolutely. It's not carbon dioxide. It's the fact that we're putting these mandates and not allowing the free market to work. We're canceling pipelines. We're preventing us developing our own energy. And look at the Biden energy policy. Look at the high gas prices and everything else. There, there is no doubt that that's a problem. One thing we do in the economic war room, though, is we try and find practical solutions. So I think the all-electric fleet is is in the works. I think I, I don't see that 
train stopping. So that means we've got to start developing power plants and looking for alternative solutions. And one solar solution we talked about, Mark, with Lieutenant General Stephen Quast, who was an advocate for the Space Force, brilliant guy. He talked about how if you have space, you actually could put solar panels in space and beam power to Earth using Tesla, you know, Nikolai Tesla technology. He says it's all there. It's all real. The problem is, is that the progressive far left doesn't want us to militarized space. And so we sit those things up and the Chinese will just shoot them out of the out of the um, space. So we have solutions. If we will allow technology to work and the free markets to work, we can come up with answers. So when we get all these scientists and all these public policymakers that are intervening uh, to try and create utopia that we have problems. Yeah, just real quick. We have 4% of U.S. energy production roughly is solar and wind combined. 80 plus percent or around 80% is fossil fuels. If you go back to 1915, it was the same mix globally. I mean, nothing has changed. So the problem is they want to ban energy that's proven itself work and mandate energy that's just not ready. I'm not against solar and wind. As you just said, especially solar, the technological potential is spectacular and huge. I'm not going to be here and say, oh, solar is never going to work. No, but I'm saying we can't mandate something until it's ready. And then you mentioned, of course, that there are other tech things that could happen. You know, they may not want them for political reasons, you know, militarization of space. But what's interesting here is Biden came in day one, shut down pipelines, shut down mining, going after fracking, death of a thousand cuts, started energy, gas prices went through the roof. All sorts of things happen there. So now we have the specter six months after uh, in this into this new administration begging OPEC to increase oil production. Russian oil imports at an 11 year high and now a huge increase on Chinese rare earth mining. This do they say climate is a national security threat. John Kerry claims that uh, Biden's climate envoy. It's the opposite. Climate policy is the greatest national security threat we face. And not only that, the climate policy doesn't even benefit the planet. If you believe excess CO2 contributions, we're seeing them ramp up in China and India. And we're instead of getting good, clean fossil fuels here in the United States, we're getting dirty fuels from around the world. So it really is. It's hypocritical and it it really is uh, self-serving. Yeah, I don't even know. It's evil. I don't know a better word for it. Yeah, I put in my book, Green Fraud, I have the research. The more the West, Europe, the industrialized West, puts climate policy, carbon taxes, anything on our industry, all that does is increase global emissions, period. All it does is offshore energy from, you know, whether it's we're talking Venezuela, Middle East, China, India, um, Asian, where the environmental standards aren't as high, mining, more mining in Africa. We want domestic energy. We have the highest environmental standards. We have the cleanest air in the world. We are the United States. We didn't. We did. We left the UN Paris Agreement for a few years. We had the high biggest reductions in carbon dioxide uh, um, reduction than any of the signatories of the UN Paris Agreement. We led the world in it. So uh, go to your point here, Kevin, real quick. If we actually faced a climate crisis, climate emergency, we would do the opposite of what the Green New Deal proposes. We would do the opposite of what the UN. You would want to embrace wealth, prosperity, innovation, technology. That's the way forward. You can get yourself out of just about anything. The last thing you want to do is create shortages, chaos, blackouts, and economic depression. That's where you get real human suffering and real human catastrophe. Mark, you cover all this in the book, Green Fraud. It's an incredible, I mean, the the number of footnotes are incredible. Where can people learn about your work and where can they get a copy of your book? Well, my website's climatedepot.com. 
daily news and information. And my book's available at Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. And Mark Stein's website, Stein Online, has offered to sign any copies uh, because of Amazon's attempts attempts by activists to get Amazon to ban the book. Uh, so it's it's available anywhere fine books are sold. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for being in the economic war room. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. All right, online training is launching at Liberty University. If you want to stop climate change, if you want to weaponize your money and make a real difference in America, you need to be investing in the things that will promote liberty, security, and values, not in the woke uh, companies that are destroying our values. We're also going to have a climate client track. So you want to go to economicwarroom.com. Nominate your financial advisor at economicwarroom.com forward slash advisor. This is one of the most important initiatives of my lifetime. And you can learn all about this in our free battle plan. There's a battle plan we produce for every episode. You can get it at economicwarroom.com. It's absolutely free. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.